Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. On this episode, I talk with Dr. Nicole Birkins, a clinical psychologist who specializes in holistic child therapy. We discuss how nutrition affects things like mood, attention, anxiety, and behavior. Kids who have suboptimal levels of iron in their diet, in their body, end up with cognitive impairment. In fact, the more iron deficient they are, and kids who are very malnourished and very iron deficient, end up with significant cognitive impairment. Hi, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Yes, me too. Me too. I love um, you know, all the things that I've learned from you on let's say your social media and whatnot. And I'd love to talk today about how nutrition affects things like mood, behavior, and 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 other things that we may not even think about, even things like body odor. Um, and I know you're you're kind of an expert in that, you know, part of the field. So um I'm excited to dig in if you are. Absolutely. I think it's an area that people are interested in and don't often hear about. And there's so much that we can do to support kids um, in this area. So yeah, let's dive in. Sure. So, you know, most of the clients that I see uh, are, are, you know, young children. And a lot of them come to me with some type of behavioral um, challenge that they're going through in school. You know, let's say, um, you know, arguing with others at school, not keeping their hands to themselves, a lot of sensory seeking, um, and even just uh, things like hyperactivity, ADHD, and and so forth. So I've, you know, researched over the years about how the things that we eat or the things that our kids eat could affect some of those behaviors. Is that true? And, and why does that happen? It's absolutely true. And that's not just an opinion or an idea. There's good research to support um, this understanding that what our kids eat and drink, what their nutrient status is, impacts how they feel and how they function, and more specifically, impacts all aspects of behavior, learning, mood, um, and really any of the kinds of specific diagnoses that kids might be given. This is true for adults too, but we're talking about kids. So yeah, there, there is a lot of evidence to support this in a lot of different ways. And you know, before we get into maybe some of the specifics around that, I just want to be clear um, around an objection or a concern that some people uh, raise when we start talking about this. They say, okay, so are you saying that 
you know, what a child eats causes them to have ADHD or autism or anxiety or whatever. And so let's be clear that what we're talking about here are, you know, categories of symptoms. Any of these kinds of diagnoses, disorders, issues are clusters of symptoms that we give a name to. And there can be lots of contributing factors to these. So when we talk about the role of nutrition, we're talking about it as foundational for supporting kids' brain development and function. And we're talking about it as a contributing factor to behaviors and these other kinds of issues. We're not saying that diet or nutrient status alone is what causes a child to have these issues or not have these issues. Human beings are way more complex than that. We know from the research there's a significant interplay between genetic predisposition and environmental factors, lots of environmental factors. Food is just one of them. And so I just like to raise that right out of the gate to sort of help people relax into this idea and not maybe get stuck Um, you know, in the black and white of, well, you know, you're saying this is what causes or doesn't cause it. So hopefully that's helpful to frame this up. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're right. We are very complex and there is a lot of factors that are involved, you know, obviously with coming with a diagnosis and whatnot. Right. Um, So can you go into a little bit about why you know, nutrition is important, especially with brain function, especially when kids are, are little and their brains are still growing and, you know, what, what we put in our mouths matter. Absolutely. You know, I say that to parents all the time. What we feed our kids does matter. And it matters not just for their physical growth, which is, I think, what most parents are more familiar with thinking about nutrition and food in that realm, right? Oh, is my child eating enough to grow? When we go see the pediatrician, are they staying on the growth chart? Are they physically growing? Are they at an acceptable weight? Are they you know, at a weight that's too high or too low. So I think that people are familiar with thinking about food in that realm. But when we start to think about food and nutrition in the realm of brain function and mental health, it's just as important. Um, Because kids, especially, if we think about that first five years of life, are in an incredibly rapid phase of brain development and brain growth. And then even through the adolescent and young adult years, lots of brain development, brain changes happening, and nutrient status and nutrition is a key piece of that. So what we're feeding our kids or not feeding our kids matters from the standpoint of supporting all of that important neurological growth and development. So On a basic level, we want to be thinking about things like nutrient status. Is a child taking in enough of the key nutrients that they need to support brain growth, brain development, brain function? And one of the clearest examples of that for people who are kind of skeptical about this idea of nutrition or food impacting kids' brain function One of the most well-researched, well-established nutrient connections is around the mineral iron. And what we know is that kids who are iron deficient, kids who have suboptimal levels of iron in their diet, in their body, end up with cognitive impairment. In fact, the more iron deficient they are, and kids who are very malnourished and very iron deficient end up with significant cognitive impairment and brain development that is significantly different from what the norm would be. And so that's one example 
um, of where we know that specific nutrient status and food intake impacts that. Um, If we take that example of iron a little bit further, we look at the research that's been done on iron and ADHD and ADHD symptoms. Um, And we know that kids who have suboptimal iron levels tend to have more of those symptoms. Kids who are diagnosed with ADHD, when we look at their levels, tend to be lower in that. And so when we start to understand some of these connections, it helps us to see that there's more that we need to be looking at here beyond just behavioral checklists and that we really do need to be thinking about what is going into our kids' bodies throughout the day. Are they getting enough of what they need for optimal brain function? And on the flip side, are they perhaps getting too much of things that have ingredients or or um, things that can cause issues for them. And an example of that would be things like a diet that's very high in added sugars. We know that the connection between high sugar intake and mental health issues and developmental issues in kids is significant. Um, things like Uh, added dyes, chemical preservatives, things like that, which have been linked in the research literature to an increased risk of mental health symptoms, behavioral symptoms. So we're looking at what's going in our kids' mouths, not only from the standpoint of are they getting enough of certain things, but also are are they taking in certain things that are maybe problematic for them? It's both. Right. Um, and you're a mom as well, mm-hmm. right? Yes, of and, course. Yeah. And you know, it's hard enough to be a mom. I feel like in so many areas, it's you know, it, it's it's the most beautiful thing in the world, but it's also so challenging sometimes because you know we're sitting here thinking, you know, going to the grocery store, trying to pick out things for our kids, you know, thinking we're making good decisions for them, or thinking mm-hmm. that we're trying to add things in their diet, and there's just so much to remember. So all the moms out there that are listening and thinking, oh shoot, like I don't know, if, you know, if I'm feeding my kids, you know, the, the best foods for them, and this and that. And I just don't want anyone to beat themselves up over it because this is all a learning experience for us, obviously. And it's so hard to be a mom on so many levels to think, oh, now I have to worry about all of these things too, right? Yeah. Um, so so when it comes to, you know, when we're when we're trying to, you know, pick foods for our kids, I know even just the other day, you know, and it's hard to get our kids to eat things, which is gonna be what I'm gonna ask you, you know, soon mm-hmm. next. Sure. Is, you know, how can we get our kids to eat the things we want them to eat? Because there's so much pushback all the time with, you know, them not liking something or, you know, not even if we serve it to them, doesn't mean they're gonna eat it, right? Right, right. Um, but you know, going to the store and I I saw these, I'm, I'm looking at all the packaging, right? Because I'm that mom that sits in the aisle for five minutes, think, okay, what has the least amount of sugar or this mm-hmm. or that? And, you know, I was looking for some, my, my son loves fruit gummies and he always wants me to buy, you know, these little fruit snacks. Right. And I was looking at all the packaging and of course, besides the sugar, which is the obvious one, it was red dye 40, I believe that was in almost every single package. Mm -hmm. And then that's what you're talking about when it comes to, you know, maybe something, an ingredient, you know, like that, that we might not look for, but that could be linked to, mm-hmm. let's say, mood changes, behavioral changes. Is that right? Just something, just wanting Absolutely. to Absolutely. Like A good rule of thumb, because really it does not need to be complicated. I think we have so overcomplicated uh, nutrition and food. And, you know, that's why people just throw their hands up and go, this is too complicated. And sometimes on the flip side, we use the this is too complicated or too hard Um, sort of line as an excuse because we just don't want to face it and think about it for ourselves. And that's the tricky part of all this is to address food stuff with our kids requires us to take a look at our own food stuff, which can be mired in our own 
childhood history and adult history of our own health, our own eating patterns, our own just everything, right? And yes, so absolutely. this is, this is a, a tricky topic in that way. But really from a nutrition standpoint, there's some basics that are important. And to use your example with the fruit snacks, that's a great example of what we would call an ultra processed food. We sort of have a couple categories of food. And this is just a good basic way for parents to understand this and think about it when they're doing their shopping. Um, we've got Whole Foods, which is kind of the term that we use, not, not the grocery store that takes all, you know, an exorbitant right. amount of <laughs> uh, money to shop at, but Whole Foods, meaning foods in their natural form, uh, an apple, um, a, a, you know, um, carrot, something that is as you would find it in nature, an almond, okay? That's a whole food. There's not added ingredients or things to make it into what it is. It just naturally is what it is. Then we've got right. the category of processed foods, which are things that we've done something to in order to create the food product. Now, there's two, there's different levels of processing. Pretty much, you know, lots of food that we buy and use is processed in some way. It's been, you know, gone through a factory, even if it doesn't have stuff added to it. You know, even things that are organic packaged foods, they're processed. Flour is processed because, you right. know, we don't eat the grain whole, Okay. The problem is when we get into the category of ultra processed foods. Ultra processed foods are heavily processed foods. These are things that we haven't just mechanically done something to them. We've also added a lot of stabilizing preservative chemicals, dyes, added sweeteners, these kinds of things. Um, you know it's an ultra processed food when you turn the package over, look at the label, and the ingredient list is quite long. And you're reading through it, and there are things on there that you would not cook with in your home. Right. So there's making cookies in my kitchen, and there's the ingredients I would use for that. Butter, sugar, eggs, you know, vanilla, those kinds of things. Then there is a package of cookies I might buy in the store that not only has those things in it, but has things like sodium benzoate and, you know, dyes in it and lots of preserves. I'm reading this and going, oh, there's, you know, MSG and other things in it. Okay. I wouldn't cook with those at home. So that's a good way of breaking it down because really what we want to be focused on for ourselves and especially for our kids is minimizing the amount of ultra processed foods in their diet. Because that's where we see the problems um, when we look at the research literature. And so it doesn't mean you can't feed your kids convenience foods or packaged foods. It doesn't mean you have to home cook everything. It doesn't mean you have to have your own garden. I don't do any of those things. Right. Um, just to be clear. But it does mean that we're more conscious about if I see in the fruit snack aisle and I turn over those packages and one package tells me that it's using red dye and blue dye and you know high fructose corn syrup and lots of stabilizing ke chemicals and things that I don't recognize or don't know what they are and I turn over the other package and it's using things like vegetable dyes and it'll say that you know uh, or turmeric as a colorant it's using you know pure cane sugar or it's using fruit juice like you're reading the ingredients and it's a short list and you recognize generally what those things are from a nutrient density standpoint and a what is going to give my kid's brain and body more of what it needs and less of what it doesn't, that second option is going to be better. Now, that doesn't mean we never give them 
you know, the, the other option, we never do ultra processed foods. That's not the case either. But what you want to think of in the big picture, the target you're aiming for is to reduce the amount, to minimize the amount of ultra processed foods and increase the amount of more whole foods or nutrient dense processed foods. That's really what we're aiming for here. Right. Right. And and agree. And it's so hard. I mean, it does take a lot more time to look at some of those labels, but to me, it's so worth it because half the time you buy something and you don't even really realize what's in it. And then you look at it and you think, oh, wow, like Mm -hmm. this is what's going into our bodies. And that's just you know, harmful to me on so many levels. But, you know, not to say that our kids don't get treats sometimes. And, you know, I might buy them once in a while on a special road trip or something like that. Like I saved those kind of foods for those types of times. Yep. Um, you know, our birthday party when my, you know, you know, fill the 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 little bags that go home with the kids at the end of the party type thing, you know. Um, now I know one thing that I've gotten a lot um, over the years, and again, I'm not a nutritionist. I've actually wanted to kind of get some side of some type of certification in it because I'm always so passionate about it. Um, because I've seen it firsthand, I've read some of the articles that are out there about it. A pushback I get a lot from parents, as you mentioned earlier and alluded to, is that it's too hard. And what mm-hmm. I'm saying with that is that I've read so many articles on dairy and gluten mm-hmm. um, being contributors and factors to possible. Um, behaviors and um, uh, characteristics of, let's say, something like ADHD. And I've had a lot of kids, like I said, on my on my client roster over the years with ADHD and autism specifically. And looking at that, and I've looked at the articles and I've sent them to the parents saying, just check this out. And, you know, if you avoid gluten and if you avoid dairy, you know, you might see some symptoms minimize a little bit or mm-hmm. get better. And when I've seen my clients actually do it, I, it's right there. Like it, it is better. It doesn't make maybe make the diagnosis go away, but the yes. symptoms are better. It's minimized. But so many parents come to me and say, oh, that's just too hard. I can't mm-hmm. have a gluten-free diet. Um you know, I don't, I don't want my child to suffer and not have a good childhood, not be able to eat things at a birthday party or whatever the case mm-hmm. is. And they think that that's worse. But I'm thinking, well, what's what's worse? You know, you, you're you're here because you're trying to get help for your child's behavior because that seems unmanageable. But yet you don't want to change their yep. diet, which could help you. Right. So right. what what do you what do you tell parents that push back like that and say it's just too hard, even though they know it could work? That's right. Yeah, because then even even knowing it could work is important because there's good research behind this now. Doesn't mean for every kid that it's the magic solution, but it does mean that for a lot of kids, particularly our neurodivergent kids, um, those kinds of things are an issue, and it often is worth at least a trial of an elimination diet to see how they do. But the obstacles around that really primarily fall in the camp of the parents. Um, and you know, for a lot of reasons, again, our own histories, our own sense of overwhelm, our own, you know, whatever, sometimes we're scared to try something like that with our child because we're scared to get our hopes up that things could really improve and we don't want to be disappointed if they, if it doesn't work, you know? So there's so many, um, emotional reasons why parents put up obstacles to that. But to your point, what I share with parents is look. You're concerned, you're saying you're concerned about your child feeling deprived, you know, not being able to have something at a birthday party or whatever. But you're also saying that your child can't make friends, is in trouble in school all the time, is anxious, you know, up the wazoo, 
um, you know, as things are now. So what, what's the bigger issue there, right? Like right, right. now your kid's not even make, able to get invited to a birthday party, you know, because they're having such struggles. And so sometimes it's just really doing some digging and helping to reframe that. Like, I hear you're really struggling thinking about how to implement this. Let's kind of walk through what's going on there. Because often there's two big pieces. The first is the own, our own emotional barriers that we put in the way, our own feelings of um, overwhelm or being afraid to hope that something would improve or whatever it might be. The other is often a practical one around this feels super overwhelming because I don't understand, I don't have enough information about how to do this. And so I think that's a big piece of it is giving parents resources, um, you know, step-by-step walking them through. That's one of the things that we do, um, you know, at at our clinic is help them understand, here's how you're going to do this. Here's what it means to be on a gluten-free diet. Um, We're not talking about 20 years ago, where the only way to have your family or kid on a gluten-free diet was to basically spend all day in the kitchen making your own stuff. We've come a long way with this. Um, there are tons of options now. It's not as difficult as parents think once they have the information and kind of are walked through, here's what that would look like. The other piece to that is that you don't have to do it all at once. Depending on how severely a kid is struggling, sometimes you know parents decide and it makes really good sense to just say, okay, we are all in, we are doing this, like we are at a point where we have got to have some kind of major change and intervention and you do it all at once. Other families say, you know what, we're going to ease into this. We're going to start shifting just towards a more nutrient dense diet overall. We're going to start incorporating more nutrient dense things in. Then we're going to slowly start making some swaps for some of our child's favorite snacks or whatever to gluten-free options. And you can ease in that way too. And sometimes that's a helpful way for people to realize that, oh, I can do this. I'm not going to be totally incompetent with this. And when people feel like, okay, I'm going to be able to handle this, they tend to be more open to implementing it. Yes, absolutely. I have a few more quick questions for you, but we're going to take a quick break. Sure. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay, so I know maybe a thought that's going through a lot of parents' heads right now as they're listening to this is that they're ready, right? They're going to go to the store. They're going to, you know, pick out the, the foods that they are that they want their kids to start eating, maybe some more, um, you know, uh, foods with iron in it, maybe less glutinous foods, maybe less processed foods, things like that, more whole foods. What if the child pushes back? I think there's a lot of fear with parents, and even myself included, when I try new things with my kids, is what if they are going to starve? What if they completely refuse to eat this new diet because they're so used to and maybe almost have that addiction to some of those types of foods and ingredients, right? And they push back and they don't eat it and they're afraid they're going to starve. And so they 
end up buckling and saying, okay, fine, here's your, you know, Mm -hmm. snacks and chicken nuggets and all the things, right? Um, How do we stay strong as parents and say that they're going to be okay? And I mean, I I know I've talked to other nutritionists in the past, you know, of how to get picky kids to eat and things like that on previous episodes. And they have some great tips. And I I even have some play-based tips that I've shared about how to get kids to eat. But from your perspective, how do we, like I said, stay strong as parents when that happens? And maybe if you have any tips of, you know, starting slow, taking it, you know, maybe one item at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time on how to get kids to eat, especially if they push back, because I'm sure they will. Right. Their kids, of course they will. It's kind of their job. And, you know, depending on the stage of development they're in, uh, it could be more or less of a forceful resistance, depending. So I think the first thing is mindset around that. And boy, we have a lot of parents that are upside down and backwards for a lot of good reasons about, um, you know, just the emotions of feeding kids. Um, Kids are going to push back on lots of things. It's our job to decide what's going to be served and when. It's the kid's job to decide whether they're going to eat and how much. And when we stay in those roles, and that's really from Ellen Satter's work on the division of feeding responsibilities, you've probably covered that you know, in various ways on your show, I've done several podcast episodes of my own about that. But when yeah. we stay in those roles, that's important. Where we get mixed up is we start to take on too much of our child's emotion and too much of their job of, you know, whether they're going to eat and how much. And so when we can stay in the realm of, okay, this is what's being served and this is when, and now my kid gets to decide, that's important. It's important for all kids. It's important for kids that we might call picky eaters. And it's even important if you have a child with a feeding disorder or a diagnosed feeding problem, although there are different ways that we're going to approach what we feed them and when if your child truly has a diagnosed feeding disorder, which is not the majority of kids who have picky eating. Most kids are picky eaters because they and their parents early on in their development got into this emotion-fueled cycle um, of dysregulation around eating, right? And so parents now feel like, oh, you know, what am I going to do? And it's such an issue and I'm overwhelmed and, you know, whatever. So um, this this is common. So I think the first thing is mindset of realizing that, okay, this happens a lot of the time, you know, And, and there are tools for dealing with this. This is not a catastrophe. And most of it is you as the parent regulating your own emotions around it and not getting dysregulated or worked up yourself when your child is pushing back or doesn't like something or whatever. So that mindset piece and managing our own emotions is part one. Part two is our own modeling. I can't tell you the number of parents who complain to me about their kids not eating enough veggies, for example. And I say, well, tell me about your eating of veggies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or my kid drinks soda pop too. You know, my kid doesn't drink enough water as they're sitting at the table in my office drinking a big gulp of Dr. Pepper, right? No judgment. Right. Like drink whatever you want to eat, eat whatever you want to eat. However, when it comes to kids, they are looking to us as a model. And that is profoundly more important than what we tell them. And we have studies that show this. We have studies that show that in households where parents eat more vegetables, kids eat more vegetables. Right. So we need to be focused on our own modeling and realize that that's powerful. The third piece is exposure. Every meal, every snack is an opportunity for building comfortability in our kids around different foods, whether they eat them or not. 
So this idea of, okay, you're having your goldfish crackers and I'm putting cucumber slices, you know, uh, right. on the side of the plate with it. Well, I don't want them. With it. You just say, that's okay. You don't have to eat them. There they are. Right. And you keep exposing. Absolutely. You get them in the kitchen with you. You take them to the store. You let them play with foods. We get so focused on the chewing and swallowing part of it that we skip over the entire first important piece of that, which is exposing them and building their comfortability around different smells, textures, what things look like. As kids get more exposure, it builds comfortability, reduces their anxiety, which reduces their um, resistance to it. So we've got to stay the course with exposure, even when they're not eating it. And talking about our values around that, you know, it's important that we have veggies with our dinner. Here they are. You don't have to eat them. You know, making sure that there's always something at a meal that a kid will eat, but not short order cooking. This is another pattern that gets so energy draining and overwhelming for parents. Um, oh, yeah. You're short order cooking. That's not helpful to you and it's not helpful to your kid. So if that's what's going on, I really encourage you to get some um, support and intervention around that for yourself to get out of that pattern um, you know, because we do have this fear that, oh my gosh, if we don't give them what they want, they're going to hate us. They're going to, um, you know, they're, they're never going to eat, you know, all of these things, uh, the vast majority of which are unfounded for the vast majority of kids. And yeah. so, you know, it's important to build in family meal times where here's what's being served. There's always something on the table the child will eat, but if the rest of it, they don't, then they don't. But you're exposing them and you're saying, this is what we're modeling. This is what's important um, to us uh, around how we fuel our bodies. Um, and so, you know, th there's lots more around that, but I think that um, saying that, well, we can't feed our kids better uh, because, you know, they don't want to. Well, we could say that about lots of things with parenting, and yes. yet we make our kids do all kinds of things they don't want to do, right? Yes. They don't want to brush their teeth. They don't, you know, they don't want to wear underwear when they leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to whatever, right? And, and we figure that out. And yet there's this weird thing when it comes to food. It's like, oh, you know, I just have to leave them on their diet of mac and cheese and chicken nuggets because, you know, that's just all they'll do. And so I just really encourage parents to unpack their own thoughts and feelings around that and, and to look at how to move forward in that area. Yes, absolutely. And, and I do know it's hard. And I just want to recognize that, you know, I know a lot of parents out there that have said, I really want to, but I just can't afford to, you know, so they, you know, buying things like gluten-free foods and organic foods and not to say you have to buy organic foods. You can still buy, you know, vegetables yep. that aren't organic, but, right. um, or even frozen vegetables. I mean, something, right. Um, but I know that some parents have said, I just can't do it. You know, they send their school, um, their child to school every day, not with a packed lunch, but they buy the lunch that comes with the school, right. Cause it's oh, yep. free. Right. And I've seen those lunches, at least at my, in my, our school district, and they are not they, they are right. not, they're not pretty. I mean, they think pizza is a vegetable because it has tomato sauce on it. Mm -hmm. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, so, um, you know, I, I understand for those parents listening that, you know, that, that when financially that factor gets in the way too, can be hard, um, you know, and just putting it out there. And like I said, they're, they're, I know I, my husband buys all of his frozen vegetables at Walmart because they're like half the price of regular right. grocery stores. So I know well, there's I'll make some a comment about that. This is a great yeah. tip for people. Fre frozen is just as good as fresh. That, yes. That's a pro tip and a money-saving tip and an ease tip. 
Yes. You do not have to have fresh produce in order for it to be nutrient dense. So do stock up on those frozen ones. It's easier all the way around and still a very nutrient dense option. And yes, the finances are a concern for food in general, especially right now with what we're dealing with, with inflation and all of that. So here's what I say to families. Do what you can. Do what you can. Do the best you can with what you have. That's it. And and then you rest well at night saying, I'm doing the best I can. What's great is we're starting to see um, things shifting, even in terms of programs now in many states that allow families, you know, moms with WIC or families with um, food uh, support benefits to be able to use those things and actually double the amount of their um, support subsidies at things like farmers markets. We're, we're seeing more innovation around how to make good quality nutrient dense food accessible. Um, to people across the board, especially those families who are really struggling financially. We need a lot more of that. This gets into the bigger picture of part of why nutrition and eatings become so upside down and backwards in this country is because of um, the way that we have chosen from a government standpoint to subsidize agriculture. There's so many bigger picture things in play around why processed foods have become the mainstay um, and why it's more expensive and more difficult to eat healthier, nutrient-dense, like whole foods. So on a systems level, there's a lot that needs to change there. In the meantime, in our own homes and with our own kids, we just need to strive to do the best we can to continue learning around these things, to continue trying, to continue you know, seeing uh, what swaps we can make, what does fit in our budget, where we can shop to do that. Um, you know, even something as basic as switching to water as the primary beverage that your kids are drinking makes a huge difference, not only in reducing the amount of added sugars and chemicals that they're consuming, but also in keeping them well hydrated. Um, and that is a money saving thing because you're not then spending the money on all the milks and the juices and the sports drinks and the sodas and whatever. So there are some ways to leverage very low cost um, options. But yes, this is a challenge. It is grossly unfair um, that every single family in um, this country can't feed their kids uh, you know, a, a, a nutrient-dense diet. And we have a lot of work there to do on a bigger, more systems level. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I know we're out of time. One last question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of parents come to me and say, you know, my child's been diagnosed with ADHD. The doctors want to medicate them. I don't want to medicate them. What do I do? Should they start at some of the tips that we've talked about already about, you know, maybe adding more iron, um, you know, adding more whole foods and things like that, maybe doing some elimination diets um, as a first case scenario or first first step? um, If they don't want to medicate, would that be the the first tip that you would give them um, in in maybe how to holistically help some of those, um, you know, behaviors and so forth? Well, I think the important thing for all parents to know is that medication is not the gold standard uh, first level intervention for ADHD symptoms or diagnosis. That's important to understand. The first level should always be um, parent-based interventions and behavioral support. So looking at referring to somebody, uh, depending on the severity of issues, 
um, to help with uh, understanding what's going on with the child and giving some lifestyle and you know behavioral kinds of um, solutions for that uh, for parents and then also in school. Um, whether or not you decide to go down the medication route, looking at physiological pieces is key. Um, so at a basic level, if a child is having ADHD symptoms and medications being recommended, you know, before looking at medication, a, a provider should be doing something basic like checking the child's iron level to make sure that's not deficient. Because we know if iron isn't in the optimal range, kids are much more likely to have those symptoms. The other thing, and this is not nutrition focused, but key that every provider should be screening for and looking at before making a diagnosis or medication recommendation is the child's sleep. We know that 25 to 40% of kids who end up with a diagnosis of ADHD actually have an undiagnosed, untreated sleep issue. So there are several basics, several other things that should be looked at when a child's having these symptoms. You know, as you mentioned, what's going on with the child's diet? Let's do a little blood work. Um, always makes good sense to layer in these interventions and to start with these brain and body foundations first. And then if you're doing those things and you're not getting the improvement that, um, that you need or, or you know, wanting to, to have there, then you look at layering something like medication or more intensive you know, interventions or whatever on top of that. Because even for kids who take medication um, and have benefit from medication for something like ADHD or, or you know, pick your diagnosis, anxiety, you know, autism, whatever, medications work better and kids need lower doses to get the same effectiveness when we're addressing these physical foundations of things like nutrition, sleep, movement, that kind of stuff. So there's every reason to look at building a foundation with these kinds of things first or alongside of medication, um, because it really does make an impact whether you end up using a prescription or not. Right. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Nicole, for just all of your insight and wisdom today. Um, I know I appreciate it. I always learn something new when I do these. As, as much training and education as I've had, I always learn something new, and I always appreciate that. So where can others find you to um, follow along with you on social media or get more information from you? Sure. So my website is drberkins.com, D-R-B-E-U-R-K-E-N-S.com. You can get lots of um, lots of resources there. There's videos, there's handouts you can download, there's my podcast, The Better Behavior Show, where you can search for that on your favorite podcast player if you if these kinds of topics interest you. Um, on social media, I'm most active on Instagram. That's where I have um you know, my biggest community of parents and tend to spend uh, most of my time. You can find me at Dr. Nicole Birkins. I'm also on um, Facebook as well. So yeah, I would love to have, um, would love to have people come over and, and join the party there. Yes. Hopefully they'll come by and say hello. And thank you again for everything today. And I'll have to have you back because I still have more questions. So <laughs> we'll have to just do a whole nother episode in, in a part two at some point, but um, happy but to do it. This was time. great. Yay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first. Then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. 
This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.